Hi, it's Erin Murphy Fisher, your host for the Kappa Kappa Gamma Career Academy podcast series. In this episode, we will cover how to be adaptable and how to pivot in the workplace. You are about to hear some stories from the one and only Elizabeth Bailey. And I have to tell you what's fascinating is that she has worked in the corporate office of Waffle House for 25 years. But what's fascinating is that her team made her work on the floor making the waffles for two weeks before she walked into the corporate office. And she learned a lot in those two weeks. In particular, she learned that people are judging us constantly and sometimes not in such helpful ways. But more importantly, what she learned is how to take all of those experiences working on the floor and really be adaptable and pivot. And more importantly, how to advocate for other people, no matter what their role is. So take a listen to Elizabeth Bailey. I want to know, based on your experience, was your dream job to work for the Waffle House? Gosh, no, not not at all. I would say my dream was really only to get married, have kids, and bake cookies when they came home from school. Okay. Yeah, that's what I wanted to do. And, And I would say, you know, in college, I certainly was smart enough. I was a leader in my chapter and on campus, but I truly had no real vision at all. And I didn't know what I wanted to do when I graduated. And of course, things were different when I was graduating from college, which was a long time ago. And I would say a lot of women didn't necessarily have a vision at that time. But between my junior and senior year, I remember distinctly my mother calling upstairs one afternoon and she said, Elizabeth, I was thinking you should go to law school. I was a very, very compliant child. And I said, okay. Like, I had no passion or interest in law school at all, but I went ahead, applied to law school, and my dad was on the faculty at Tulane University in the engineering school, so I could go to Tulane for free. So I only applied to Tulane because I figured if I didn't like it, it would just be a waste of time but not money. I got on the wait list, and I went to Europe for two months when I graduated from college and came back from Europe and found that I didn't get into law school, which was not crushing because I really didn't want to do it. But about a week after I got back home from Europe, again, my mother yelled up the stairs and she said, Elizabeth, I was thinking maybe you should take the paralegal classes at Tulane. And again, I said, okay. (laughs) It was just like one of those kind of things. It's like, okay, I'll do that. And so I took the paralegal classes at Tulane, and you know, I worked in New Orleans for a couple of years. That's my hometown. And then I packed my bags and moved to Atlanta. I didn't know anyone. I didn't have a job. But I just, in my mind, thought, I have to live in Atlanta. So that's what I did. And I got a job as a paralegal. And I will say, I never liked being a paralegal. I wouldn't even say I was a very good paralegal. Okay. Uh, but, and, you know, people liked me because... I still had a good attitude and things like that, but I wasn't good at it. I didn't like the minutia aspect of it at all. For me, it never really mattered because I kept thinking, I'm going to get married, have kids, and bake cookies, so I'm just doing this job. It's just buying time. So that's kind of where I was headed in all of that. And 
in my late 20s, I fell head over heels for a guy who I thought he is the one and, you know, would fulfill that dream of getting married and having the kids and baking the cookies. And we dated off and on for about three years. And then he crushed my heart like a bug. <laughs> but it was probably one of the best things that ever happened. Um, didn't feel that way at the time. So I'm in my early 30s at this point. And all of a sudden I thought, oh my gosh, I may not get plan A in my life. I need to look at plan B. And I didn't know what plan B would be, but I needed to start doing that. And so I explored grad school and I had volunteered for CAPA as a chapter advisor at Emory University. And I realized I love college students. And I thought, well, I could get my master's in higher ed. So I researched all of that, studied for the GRE, which was not easy when you're in your 30s. Like I had to relearn the Pythagorean theorem. I mean, it was that kind of stuff that you had to just kind of learn all over again. Basically what happened with grad school, things didn't quite fit together. I would get offered an assistantship for a program that I wasn't exactly interested in and things like that. And so at the end of the day, I shelved the grad school idea. And I'm still just kind of dinking along as a paralegal. And one of my guy friends one day, he said, Elizabeth, you are way too smart and you need to be doing something bigger and more than what you're doing right now. And at that point, all I knew was just something about workers' compensation because I worked for a defense attorney. So I started going from there. This is definitely going to date myself. I answered a little blind ad in the newspaper that sounded like it would be perfect. It was for a self-insured employer in the restaurant industry. And I was at work one day after I'd submitted my resume and I got this call and it's like, this is Rick from Waffle House. I'm thinking, <laughs> Waffle House? <laughs> Who wants to work for Waffle House? I mean, like literally that's what's going in my mind. And if you spent any time in Atlanta, this will sound ludicrous, but I never even noticed Waffle House before in Atlanta. And there are Waffle Houses at every single exit. It's kind of like when someone will talk about a new kind of car and all of a sudden you're thinking, I don't think I've ever seen that car and then all of a sudden it's like oh my gosh that car is everywhere well of course Waffle House is everywhere and so I went on my first interview and I thought yeah there's no way I'm gonna work for this place and part of it's just a very spartan bare bones everyone works in a cubicle I was used to a law firm where everything's pretty artwork on the walls and mahogany furniture and that type of thing it was truly all I could do to write a thank you note after the interview because I thought, I don't want to work here. But my mother taught me to always write a thank you note. So I wrote the thank you note after mm -hmm. the interview. I did go to eat at Waffle House after the first interview with some friends and that completely sealed it for me that I would not work there. You said no at that point. Yeah, yeah. I was like, no way am I going to work for Waffle House. And I, I still remember the decor at that time in the restaurants was burnt orange, mustard, yellow, brown, like, ugh, it's just an assault to my senses. And I just thought there's no way. But then like a month went by and again, it was, this is Rick from Waffle House calling me for a second interview. It was a bad day at work, so I said yes. And another thing was happening kind of at the same time. A friend of mine named Robert, he had been diagnosed with stomach cancer. He was 38 years old, single. He had just gone through a round of chemotherapy. So a group of us were at Robert's house that Friday night after I had accepted to go on a second interview just to encourage Robert. 
I was with my friends. I said, y'all are not going to believe what I did. Waffle House called me and I said, yes, but I'm going to call them on Monday and cancel that interview. Robert was a stockbroker and fairly business savvy. And he said, Elizabeth, you got to go back for the second interview. So I did it. I went back for the second interview. What really turned things around, um, at that time I was meeting again with Rick from Waffle House, but also the man who was the CFO at the time. And I had asked him what was the secret to Waffle House because Waffle House doesn't do any marketing, advertising, that type Mm. of thing. And I will never, ever forget his answer. He looked at me in the eye and he said, we like to think of ourselves in the people business and we just happen to serve food on the side. And that's when I realized what the secret sauce was to Waffle House. It was all about relationships, relationships with the customers, relationships that the associates have with each other. And then a week later, I went back for the third interview. And now you've been there for decades. 25 years. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) So you've been there for 25 years. And you know what's fascinating is you tell this story. You have been adaptable in so many ways since the beginning, before before you even started applying for this job. And and some of it is interesting because it was some influence from your mom who would yell up the stairs with her big idea. <laughs> yes. And you go, okay, let's try it. And I, first of all, I think that's so interesting. But then also that you had influence from Robert who said, you know, he's going through cancer treatment and he's saying to you, listen, what do you have to lose? And so it sounds like you had that same spirit of like, what do I have to gain if I just go and try it out and see what they say to me? Absolutely. Mm, That is fascinating. So they gave you the secret sauce and you said, okay, I'm going to try this. And I imagine that it was not perfection from top to bottom. I imagine as any employee who's been in a workplace for 25 years that there were a million ups and downs. Am I right on this? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I spent the first two weeks on the job working behind the counter in the restaurant. Okay. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay. I had never waited tables before. So that was just this huge thing to wrap my head around. And I'm working at Waffle House, and I only know one thing to order because I've only eaten at Waffle House one time. It certainly gave me a great picture of our customer base, which is just a slice of Americana. I will say I dreaded the rainy days because that means that's all the field workers, the construction workers, the Georgia power workers. Everyone comes in to eat at Waffle House, which meant it was really, really busy. So I hated it when it rained. And then you just encounter different kind of people. Uh, I did get a proposal from a very drunk customer. (laughs) (laughs) And we're talking 1030 in the morning, stumbling drunk. So I got a proposal. The weekend, the demographics really changed as far as who came in. And it wound up being more what I would call white collar workers who were just having their breakfast on Saturday morning or Sunday morning at the Waffle House. And that was a real turnaround. I felt very invisible. I was wearing my Waffle House uniform. I felt like people looked right through me and made assumptions about who I was because of what I was wearing. And I would say that's become a life lesson for me. You know, if someone wears the white coat, they're a doctor, they must be smart, they must have all the answers. And if you're wearing a Waffle House waitress uniform, there is a sense of being less than. So I've kind of carried that the whole time just in life. 
And then the other thing that happened, I was doing door core, which is greeting at the door over the weekend, which meant I was pre-bussing tables. And I'll never forget one of the waitresses in a very loud voice so all the customers could hear is, I hate it when she does that. And what she was doing is she was thinking I was stealing her tips. And so the weekend was hard. And I remember I came home and I was sobbing so hard because I thought I cannot go back there. I just can't do it one more day. And, you know, you would have thought I was crying like the biggest, baddest breakup I'd ever had. Then I gave myself a little pep talk and I said, Elizabeth, every single person in that office has worked those two weeks straight. You can do it too. So I went back, worked my fall two weeks. Of course, later I found out that actually no one else in the corporate office had ever worked <gasps> the two weeks straight. Yes. How did, what? <laughs> yeah. well, how did you find out and how did they convince you that you had to do two weeks? Uh, well, I, you know, I didn't know otherwise. I think I was a grand experiment that failed. <laughs> and, but as I started like meeting people in the office, I said, oh my gosh, you work two weeks in the office. That's really something. Now we all work in the office at least one day a year and I work every Christmas, but no one had done the two weeks straight. So that was kind of like, okay. But I, I gave myself the pep talk, believing everyone else had. But then I get into the third week and I'm actually in the office now. And it's just not any better. And I met with my boss and I said, you know, I think we both have made a terrible mistake. And I think it's probably best if I just leave now. And he wanted to know what was wrong. And I told him the whole place made me nauseous, <laughs> so, which is not the kind of thing you want to tell a boss, but that's how I felt. And then I just started pouring out everything that I didn't like about the culture and the company and everything. And he asked me to come back the next morning and in that conversation, he said, could I just give it a month? And I remember I rolled my eyes. And I said, I suppose so. And at that point, I met back with my friend Robert again, the stockbroker. And Robert was the kind of guy who took copious notes. So he's giving me all this feedback. And he said, Elizabeth, this is such a strong company. You've just got to stay. And then the other thing that went on at that time that I thought was very interesting, all of my girlfriends told me to quit. They didn't like seeing me in pain. And all of my guy friends told me to give it six months to a year. And I will say the guys were absolutely right. My sweet friend Robert, he died in June of 1996. So I had not even been at Waffle House probably eight months. And there's always this sense of me that I just wish he had been able to see the rest of the story. Mm -hmm. So here's what's fascinating. We're doing a whole podcast on how to be adaptable and pivot. And it's a reminder based on your stories that sometimes you also have to stick it out. Sometimes you have to just listen to your friends who are saying, this is where you're supposed to be because maybe they see something that you don't. But that ability to dig in, even when it didn't feel like a right fit for you, is so fascinating. And I think it is a reminder that that is most of our 20s and maybe early 30s, is that we are trying to just get through some weird, awkward, uncomfortable, not good fit situations. Absolutely. And just trying to feel like what's comfortable in your own skin, but that means sometimes being uncomfortable. Yes. So if you're listening right now, I think what we're saying loud and clear is that if you are not loving where you are, you are probably learning some big, gigantic lessons that you may not want to learn because I've been there too. I always think that they pay off dividends later. All of the tough, hardcore, 
stuff that you, that you go through in the workplace, man, you get to the other side and you go, oh, I'm going to need that. I'm going to need that courage and strength and <laughs> motivation and that, totally. and that story. Because as one of my friends says, it's either a good time or a good story. <laughs> so <laughs> I love that. I yes. do too. I think that's a great way to live. It's either a good time or a good story. Okay. So my next question that I have to know, you've had all of these folks You've talked about Rick, you've talked about Robert, you've certainly talked about your mom. Who has been mentoring you? Who has been your coach? Who has been helping you navigate all of these pivots and turns and uncomfortable situations? Yeah, there's so many different people along the way. Um, I will say when I first came to Waffle House, um, one of the things that was challenging to navigate is that it's a more male-dominated corporate culture. And so it was really hard to figure things out. So I think the first thing is figuring out who are the right people to hang around. There was one woman in the office who wanted to befriend me early on, and she had nothing but negative things to say about the company. And Early on, I realized I don't need to be spending time with this woman. This is not helping me. So I remember intentionally kind of backing away from her. One of the first people, and I don't even think I realized it until hindsight that she had been mentoring me, was one of the attorneys. I'm in risk management, so we retain a lot of outside counsel to help us. And this woman named Sandy was one of our Georgia attorneys. And she just came alongside me. She invited me to join her on all the depositions. And I realized later that she was also using this opportunity to coach me and show me how um, a woman can work in a man's world and things like that. And so we had so many wonderful times just spending a lot of time together. And I really appreciate that. And then there were just people at work. My boss I've had for the longest period of time, John, he is a fabulous boss, fabulous team leader. He's been my mentor. He's been my friend. And I found with John is, especially in those early years, he would just push me beyond my comfort zone. He's a, like a force of nature. He's just a fills a room kind of guy. And so he's really not afraid of anything. And he kept pushing me into things that weren't comfortable. But then at the same time, he always provided that safety net for me. And so I always kind of looked to John to say, he really gave me a sense of confidence. And I think also John taught me the art of self-promotion. I feel like women are not always very good about promoting themselves and saying what we're doing well. And um, John is the king of self-promotion, but I really learned that there were positive things that um, as women, we really needed to do that more. And then for about eight years, I worked directly for our CFO and what I, Bob, and I've always told Bob that while John gave me confidence, Bob actually helped me find my voice. And Bob really gave me platforms to be in front of our CEO and things like that, that really, um, helped, I think, really establish my relationship within the company as being the expert on all things workers' compensation, the go-to person. And I really appreciate really all of these different people's influences. Yeah, I think that uh, it takes a village and it takes a lot of influence. I, I, you know, we were talking about being adaptable and being able to pivot in our careers. And I think one of the best things that a mentor does is gives you that perspective that you don't have. I always relate it to a tennis coach who just seems to be standing on the lines 
and not really in the game with you, but that person sees your motion, sees your confidence, sees your capability, sees where you're missing the mark. And the right mentor or the right sponsor, to me, that's one of their major roles is to say, go for the next jump in career, or it's time to get in front of the next group of people to showcase your talents. And man, I'll tell you what, sometimes I don't like when those people give you that advice. Well, it's true, but there's something empowering about people who believe in you. And that, you know, if they believe in you, you're thinking, okay, I guess I can do this, you know? I mean, I remember John would all of a sudden be recommending me to speak on panels, um, seminars and conferences. And I was thinking, I don't have anything to say. Well, you know, now I speak at seminars and conferences on a national and regional level, probably three or four times a year. And I'm known as one of the experts, um, certainly in Georgia and really beyond Georgia as well. But it's because John believed I had something to say and promoted me to do it. So one of the things that I love talking to women about in particular is there's a difference between a mentor and a sponsor. And there are a lot of women who have mentors, but very few women that have sponsors. And the difference really is, is that a mentor is saying, is pushing and coaching and moving you in the right direction. But a sponsor says, come to this meeting, come to this event, talk to this person, be at this training, speak at this training, and they're opening the doors and giving access. And so it sounds to me like you've had both. You've had people that have said, I'm right, I'm sitting next to you. And also people who said, I'm opening the door. You better walk in with me today. <laughs> yeah, I really have been blessed to have both. And, um, and I like that term. I really hadn't thought about the difference between a sponsor and mentor. But um, there is a distinction. And I really have had the benefit of both. It sounds like it. And again, I think that they're the people that give us the perspective on when we need to pivot and when, we, when it's time to make that move. Because sometimes... We overthink things. Oh, totally, totally. <laughs> I'm guilty of that regularly. Okay, can we talk about, we're going to come back to Waffle House, hopefully, in just a little bit, but can we also talk about some of your experience with the Kappa fraternity and all of the things that you've done to serve them? Sure. That has been a fun journey, too. I have volunteered for Kappa really almost ever since college, really ever since I moved to Atlanta as a local advisor and then on the fraternity level probably for about 20 years. And that has provided me so many wonderful opportunities. I've often told people that I think I'm better at Waffle House because of the things I've learned from Kappa. And I think Kappa's better because of Waffle House. You know, it's been kind of an interesting symbiotic relationship and in some ways very contrary. I, I remember being at one of our conventions and I was trying to tag in work with the Kappa convention and so I'd run to some waffle houses in my uniform to go check out some restaurants and yeah, I came back and it, it was at the Biltmore in Arizona, a lovely resort hotel and here I'm walking through a wearing my Waffle House uniform. And I could tell there were all these Kappas looking like, what kind of riffraff are they letting in at the Biltmore, you know? And I'm thinking, oh, yeah, one of your council members wearing the Waffle House uniform. I would say Waffle House has really embraced Kappa, and Kappa's really embraced Waffle House, which has been fun to see my two worlds collide. 
And certainly with Kappa, golly, you know, they kind of throw you in the deep end sometimes. You know, you're doing presentations and multitasking and certainly, you know, to be successful as a volunteer with Kappa, you need to know how to delegate. So all of those kind of things translated. Skills I was learning with Kappa would just automatically translate to Waffle House and made me better at Waffle House. And I think coming from a more male-dominated corporate culture, it was such a gift to be able to observe a wide variety of female leadership styles and certainly having mentor opportunities um, with people like that and um, truly a gift. And what's interesting is that at some point the CFO said, you know, Elizabeth, you're doing all this mentoring with Kappa. What can you do to start a mentoring program for Waffle House, which I wound up getting that started at Waffle House. And I had been all along mentoring women in the office over the years, countless people. But I think just that whole concept with Kappa of women supporting women really translated. And I really felt like it needed to translate into Waffle House as well. How can we as women really support each other? I love it. I think that there's, you know, especially this year, there's so much questioning on the value of women gathering in sororities and fraternities to build this these relationships. And I think what I'm hearing you say is that that knowing that model of what Kappa did years and years and years ago actually influenced the value of women taking care of each other in the corporate world and particularly at your at your company. Absolutely. When I think of the different heart-to-heart conversations I've had with different women in the office, and none of them were in sororities. So for them, in some ways, this women supporting women was almost a foreign concept, but I was able to really bring it into the office. I love seeing their success. It's so much fun. And to see just so many more female leaders in the company is just an exciting thing for me. Yeah, you know, my financial planner said that if there are women at the top, the finances always look healthier. And <laughs> I, so I'm always researching where are the women sitting in the boardroom because they're influencing more return because they're just bringing different things to the table. Just bringing a different perspective. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So I've learned so much today and I've got two closing questions for you. Number one, can you give us your best wisdom. What do we have to know from you based on all of your experiences, particularly as it relates to this idea of a career, although spanning 25 years in one place where you have had to move and shake and and think differently. So tell us what's your best advice. Um, I think if I was going to pick one thing, and it's something that the chairman at Waffle House frequently says, He will say, just because something good happened to someone else, that doesn't mean something bad happened to you. And the context for that is just because someone got a promotion, that doesn't mean something bad happened to you. It meant something good happened to that person and your time will come. Or it could be, you know, um, just because a friend has gotten engaged and is getting married, that doesn't mean something bad has happened to you. I mean, it it translates all across in life, but I think just really looking at things from a different perspective and having that positive attitude and just because that promotion wasn't yours at that time, 
That doesn't mean something bad's happened. And I think a lot of times people will turn to kind of a sour grapes mentality um, because they didn't get that shot when maybe their time's just going to come a little bit later. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. And it's not all perfectly laid out like it is in the movies. Never is. Never is. You know, I, I don't think anyone goes a, a straight line in their career. I think there are lots of zigs and zags. Yeah, Cheryl Sandberg talks about that in terms of being on the jungle gym. So the corporate ladder versus the train track versus the, her jungle gym. And she said, if you need to bounce around, by all means, do it. Yeah, no, no, totally. And, and I think for a lot of people, it takes a while to just figure out really where you fit, um, where you fit culturally in a corporation, where are your strengths, and I think owning your strengths and not looking at thinking, I wish I had this strength. Own what you've got and capitalize on it. I love it. It's great advice. All right. What kind of uh, cookies are you baking this weekend for us? <laughs> Well, I do love my cinnamon chocolate chip cookies. So okay. <laughs> what I will say is, yeah, none of this stopped me from baking. That's definitely one of my passions. You know, you can still do a lot of different things and explore your passions. So my office gets to be the beneficiary of my cooking skills. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will take your cinnamon cookies any day. I love it. All right. Elizabeth, thank you for sharing all your insight and especially giving us some wisdom and advice on no matter if you jungle gym your entire career and bounce from company to company to pick up skills or mentors or new habits and practices, or you stay with a company for 25 years, there's so much to learn from your story. And I'm so grateful that you were able to spend some time with us this afternoon. Well, thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Our next guest today is the brilliant Darcy Howe. She's got some stories about a 32-year career in wealth management. That's where we invest our dollars so that at some point in our life, we can retire happily. She's going to be sharing some of her personal and professional experiences, but most importantly, what you'll hear from her is how her Kappa experience really led to some confidence building and certainly some relationship building. We also joke that it may have led to some conflict management building as well. I'm so excited because you've had an incredible career and you are now in this place to share all sorts of advice and wisdom, as I always say, but tell us a little bit about your work history and how you've had to be adaptable and pivot. Well, the uh, 32-year career uh, in the wealth management space was also, even though it was 32 years in one place, the 80s were different from the 90s. The 90s were different from the 00s. There was a lot of change. And we went from um, transaction people to trusted advisors. And if you didn't pivot who you were, even as a wealth advisor, you were uh, a dinosaur and you really were not keeping up with the trends of how to be a good wealth advisor. So even in what appeared to be a long career that might seem boring to some who like, who could ever be in a 32 year career? I think it was actually literally four different careers through the decades on in terms of what wealth management looked like. But I retired from that in 2015. And the reason I retired 
is, in fact, my kids were kind of all upset at me about this. They're like, mom, you're leaving at the, the height of your career. You're letting your partners walk all over you. I mean, there were all of these signals from my own family that they were kind of wrapped up into my success. And what I found is I loved my client families, but I didn't love the work anymore. I was no longer sort of challenged by the work. And in the work that I was doing, you had to be on 24-7. Like what happened in China? What happened in Europe? How does that affect our portfolio companies? We were multi-generationally managing over a billion dollars for families. It was a big responsibility. And so you couldn't do it part-time. So for me, I was in my mid-50s. I didn't want to wake up at 65 and say, wow, I wish I had looked at the world in a different way. And so I retired in my late 50s and intended to retire for good. The day I cleaned out my Christmas wrapping paper closet, I knew that was not my intended life. Like, oh my God, go do something more interesting than this. And I called one of my former clients who was doing some interesting things in incubating early stage technology companies. And I said, hey, Ron, is there anything I could do to help you guys? And his answer was, uh, not in our business, but I'm trying to help our community, which I live in Kansas City, Missouri. I'm trying to help our community grow our economy a little faster. We have fallen behind in Kansas City, fallen behind many other cities, including Nashville, Indianapolis, Dallas. There's just a, a number of Columbus, Ohio, in fact. And what were we doing about that growth? And so I joined as a volunteer to just help. And what I learned from that is I had many skills that were very valuable to my community that I could cobble some things together. One is I had been an angel investor, so I had personally invested in early stage technology companies for the last 30 some odd years. I was a wealth manager, so I understood asset management. I knew well-to-do people. They were my former clients and just people in the community. That was my job. And so I just put things together and created a fund to educate and grow more early stage investors and to try and help young high growth technology companies stay in the region. So we would bring the investors together. We would bring the, the entrepreneurs together with the investors. We even have investors who are corporations. So we're helping them to the corporations to connect with technology so the technology companies could provide services for them and, and grow their, their revenue. And so this pivot idea back to our original, what is, what is a pivot about this? Maybe everything about I've just, that I've just said is, is a pivot. Like I didn't really know how to be a venture capital fund manager. Uh, I'm now managing multi-millions of dollars, not billions. But the work that I'm doing, I'm finding that I wasn't as suited in a big corporation. I was much more suited to what I call flying my freak flag. And that is just using my gut. What's coming to me? What needs to be done? How can I build that? And I found in myself in my late 50s that I'm a builder. I am an entrepreneur myself. I'm a builder. I'm somebody who likes to just think it through and build it. And I get kind of bored after a while if it's not something that still needs needs fine tuning. So a very long answer to your question, Aaron. But, you know, I have found pivoting has been exhilarating, energizing. I feel I'm using my brain more than ever. I'm doing the best work of my life and I'm now 63. And I couldn't say more positive things about all of our Kappa sisters getting out of that sailing along zone and just put yourself out there to do something just that's really suited to you.
Okay, that was a mic drop response. I learned so much, but one of the biggest questions that I have for you is this. When you think about the resources available, the technology that changed, the way you manage, the things that you had to learn along the way to increase your knowledge in your profession, A, could you have imagined how much it would have changed? And then the second part is, what were some of the biggest changes along the way that you had to adapt and pivot toward as a result? So looking at my colleagues, I had colleagues a generation ahead of me. I had colleagues uh, half a generation ahead and the colleagues who are my own generation. And what, I say the same thing about parenting. Just look and see somebody who's doing it really well and emulate them. <laughs> um, and also conversely, who are the dinosaurs in your profession or in your world? And what are they doing wrong or not doing right? What cues have they missed that the world is passing them by and they haven't seen the cues? If I could go back to my myself in my 30s and 40s, um, I'd say I was a little too conventional, a little too not, there weren't very, you know, I think it was maybe 12 to 15% women. There were many women, and I don't use that as an excuse. I just saying, you know, I didn't have a lot of, folks to like, hey, let's do this together. Let's compete with each other. Let's really push each other. That I didn't have anybody in my life like that. And so I think I would seek that person or those persons out. I would ask them to make me deliver on being really great. And frankly, I would ignore the people who said to me, oh, you should be an assistant. You shouldn't do this yourself, which I ignored anyway. But there were other people who were kind of like, hang on, little lady, you know, who do you think you are? And you just naturally find, when you're building your own business, you naturally find the people for whom who you are is a plus, not who you are is a negative. So stay away from those <laughs> battery drainers, whether they're potential clients, whether they're people who are friends, relationships, neighbors, colleagues, and just hang out with the ones that you are going to help each other thrive go find them. I had a great example of this with actually it was, a, it was a woman who was at a big corporation. Uh, Gloria Steinem came to them. This woman is now almost seven. She's 65 years old. But when she was in her thirties, Gloria Steinem came to their company and she, Gloria Steinem said to the women in the room, go find one person in this room that you are going to share everything about your income, about your raises, about your bonuses, about everything. That way, you're going to have knowledge that you're going to be able to use for your own benefit and for, and for each other. This woman said in her career, that amounted to more than a million dollars of additional income in her career because she had the nerve to do that. So it's a very specific case in point on finding that person who's going to be your trusted and push you to be your best and share confidential, important information like that, which I think will help each of you to, to thrive. I think most women are scared to talk about the idea of money and income and resources. But what you're saying is that that benefited this other woman so much that over her lifetime of her career, it, it benefited her a million dollars. That's incredible to think about. Who has been your biggest supporter and cheerleader? Who has been your mentor, your advisor? Who's given you some tough feedback along the way? Talk to us about the people who've impacted your career as you've been adapting and pivoting. 
This sounds so trite. You probably have others who have said this, but honestly, a life partner who gets who you are and who is like that super cheerleader for your gig and is not intimidated by, but is rather, you know, just really supportive of, I cannot overemphasize how I, I might not be an easy person to get along with. Not every guy uh, that I've ever dated or known, including some of my colleagues, I literally had one said, boy, I wouldn't want to be married to you. And I, and I looked at him and I was like, you know what? I wouldn't frankly want to be married to you either, buddy. <laughs> so good thing we're not. But I, you know, I think a life partner is really, really important to not hold you back, but actually to help you accelerate. But it took me a long time to find people in my life, and some are men and some are women, who push me and who will give me honest answers and honest feedback, solicited and unsolicited. In the last probably six years now, uh, I have a walking date with a friend. I now have walking dates with two friends who do the same thing. We, we help each other and we find an hour or an hour and a half to walk uh, about twice a month. And so we get exercise and we, and we chat and we bring to that a specific thing that we want to talk about. Each of us wants to talk about, and we each give each other time to do that and provide feedback. And the first friend, she's someone who wanted to do some writing and some speaking she now has written three books and has been on the international speaking tour for actually women in um, middle level business all over the world and how to succeed. So I, th I think it's also, I can see the acceleration and the, the results of her thinking these things through and acting upon them and being accountable to me and for me being accountable to her. The fund I'm running, raising now, I had a lot of naysayers, a lot of people who just wouldn't answer my call. I probably had almost a thousand meetings um, to get to 80 investors. She was there for me when I was super frustrated and felt like no one got what we're trying to do here. And that was four years ago. And now we've raised, gosh, more than $50 million to invest in our high growth technology companies in our local community. So, and our investors are having the ones who said yes, who got it, are having a ton of fun. They're pivoting their own. It's so interesting to watch. You know, they've sold a business themselves or they're semi retired or they're next generation. Uh, they might from a well-to-do family. Their parents don't get this, but they're super excited about technology and they're in their 20s. And we are helping people in our community to pivot and realize this is growth. This is fun. This is the way that our next generation will come back to our community because we're going to have great jobs, great companies, that, that kind of thing. So it's fun to not only be in my own pivot, but to help others to have their own pleasure and delight in learning something new and really changing up what they're doing in their lives. I love it. So what I need to know next is, were you afraid of any of the change? Were you challenged in ways that were unexpected? What we're feeling from you is that you are a tenacious woman. When you're saying that you've called a thousand people to get 80 investors in on a project, there's no doubt in my mind that you are a highly motivated woman. But what scared you along the way and what challenges really kept you up at night? I am sensitive to criticism. I have thin, way too thin a skin for who, I, who I'd like to be, right? Grew up in a household where there was kind of a lot of yelling and, you know, I just don't like conflict. And so it's just a little, you know, I, I, I'm a little too 
thin-skinned. And so I think that's been the hardest part for me is I come across as like, oh my God, she's so assured and all that. But little things that people say can really, like I can dwell on them a little too long. So how do you get over those natural, say, less than strengths in yourself. And for me is I go and try and find something that's going to pump me up as fast as I can when I start getting into one of those spiral pity parties of like, I went several months where not a single person really wanted to talk to me, uh, wanted to invest in my um, uh, wealth management business. The same thing. There are People who just are mean, they're not, they're not kind, they blow you off or they, at worst, they ignore you. I, there are a lot of women I know who've been in conversations where there are three guys and you and, you know, they ignore you. But it, so it, it's just, it's super easy to be sensitive to that and natural. And I think is the, my technique is just stop it, get myself out of that. What can I do that's go surround myself with somebody who's a battery charger, who thinks I'm great, who I think they're great. We have mutual admiration. And, you know, and, and I've got plenty of people like that in my life. So that's my, my technique is uh, we all get into those negative spirals of I can't do anything right, but get yourself out of it as quickly as you can, because we all have gifts. We got to figure it out. <laughs> and the sun rises the next day and those people... Yeah. It's on them some days. You know, it's easier in my 60s to believe that. In my 30s and 40s, it was really hard. Now it's like, I'm a little bit of the, you know, the hell with you. Okay, you don't get my gig, whatever. You know, that's your problem, not mine. It's hard to get to that place. The sooner you get to that, talk about lessons learned, the sooner you get to that, that it's them and not you, or if it's something about you that's authentically you and they don't like it, then that's too bad. If it's something about you that's authentically you that probably should improve, well, then listen to it. They may be coming at it as jerks, but maybe they're trying to tell you something that actually will help you. But generally, I think of it, it's them, it's not you. I would like to have this conversation go for the next two days because you are giving us great insider information. Here's the next question that I have for you. How do we get access to the right people who can help us? So we talked about being a, the woman in the room and there are three men and they're ignoring you in that space. Or you're making this great plea for investors to come to work on a project and they're saying, not now, not the right time, not interested. But beyond mentors or great team members, who? how do you get access to the right people who can help you grow? Because as you said at the very beginning, this piece of being able to pivot and adapt is not just the first year or in between careers or transitions. It happens pretty regularly. So how do we get access to those people who can be on our team? In my wealth management career, as I became more senior, actually even before I became senior, every time there would be somebody new in the firm, I would go to their office or their cubicle and just introduce myself and say, hey, anytime you want to go to coffee or lunch, you let me know how I can help you. You know how many people took me up on that? So few. And the ones who took me up on that are stellar performers. They are people who recognize an opportunity to grow and learn and increase their network. To me, it's about network. My currency is network. I have built an unbelievable network um, in my community, around the country, my Kappa network through work that I've done on the foundation. There's so many people I can call upon 
who I know would be helpful if I just had that. And looking for those reasons to be able to call upon people for their expertise or whatever it is to, to help you. It's amazing when asking people favors actually builds a relationship with them. I need favors all the time in all kinds of ways. And I'm always looking for how could I connect with someone or more importantly, how can I connect two people who have nothing to do with me? I have no tangible benefit from doing it other than the pleasure of two people who should know each other because you know that that's going to enhance their lives. And guess what? That always comes back to you in some way or another. I don't care how or when or if, if it ever does, but it does. And so how do you get access to your original question of how do you get access to people? Go think about who in your life would you really like to have in your network that they would be in your camp. I don't care how big and exalted they are in your company, in your in your community. Think about the leaders in your community who go and ask, how can you help them? They're in charge of United Way and you want to be on the United Way board. How can I help you? What can I do to, to be helpful to you? And the more you give first, you know, Adam Grant's book, Give and Take, the more you give first, the more you help others just connect with one another, you're building your network. You're building, frankly, it's a, it's, this is a word that women don't like to use, but I love to use. You're building your power base. You become more powerful when you have wonderful people that you can call upon. And now today, we are practically a talent agency in addition to running a venture fund because people know that, gee, just call Darcy and maybe she'll have an idea for you on your career. And we are just just moving people around all the time because that network is so large. You begin to know where you can help people by just connecting the dots. Being a dot connector is my genius zone. And that's not something I did in any strategy way. I just did it because it's fun and I enjoy it and it's been useful in the end. Next question that I have for you, what's the biggest jump you've had to make? Was it a new city, a new company, a new field? And along the way, when you were making those bigger jumps in your career, what were some of the unexpected things? And what is some of the advice that you would give to us when there is a jump that's unexpected or a larger than life jump? The first big jump in my career was when I was just a regular wealth manager and our firm decided to have a separate unit. I was one of 30 that got tapped and made the accredit through the accreditation process to have clients that were only um, had $10 million of investable assets and up. So our average client was call it a million, two million, five million dollars in investable assets. And now this was going to kind of the top of the firm. And the people I was competing against were big shot Goldman Sachs, New York folks. And I'm this little girl in Kansas City, right? It was pretty intimidating to do that. And what I realized, particularly, this is such a strength of women of just being a listener and being a relationship person. What I realized is those guys were confident because they, I don't know why they were so confident because they weren't that, some of them weren't that good. They were just incredibly confident. And you go watch that and you're like, okay, I just got to fake it till I make it, I guess. And, uh, you know, the, even though I knew my, my work, my work, I didn't really know how to be that top, top tier 
person in our firm. And so what's the specific advice that I did? I think that this idea of don't show your weakness. It's so women. Oh my God. Oh, I would have done this. Oh, I'm so sorry. You know, how many times do they say, I'm sorry. Like, stop it. Stop saying those things. Like don't show to people you don't know and trust. Don't show those weaknesses right off the bat. Show your strength. Be a listener. The more you listen, the more they think you know something, right? To just and then go back and wet your pants later. Go back and, and cry later. Go back and you know whatever it is that is just, you know, like yeah. I can't believe I did that. I'm so scared. But just don't show that there. And uh, that's I, I think that's probably my biggest advice for that first pivot. And then the second was being a venture capitalist. Like now I'm taking, yeah, I managed a billion dollars and that was a lot more comfortable than taking somebody's $250,000 and investing in high growth technology companies that have a high degree of failure. So, and this was the the swan song of my career. I'm now, I've been on all these boards in my town. I have a reputation of some sort to, to want to uphold. And now I'm taking money to do something that I have never done for anybody else. You know, that was super scary, but it was the mission, my North Star of trying to educate and grow more early stage investors, trying to help these young entrepreneurs who are of all walks of life, who are immigrants and everything you can imagine, women and everyone, just have these, this, this mission to go out and build something. Like you want to support them. So you've got to put your fear aside of, you know, I don't know what I'm doing, but, I, but I'm going to figure it out. And you got to trust your gut. Uh, women have good gut. Trust your gut. And uh, my gut drives me a lot. And I think that was my other, at the, the other piece of advice is when your gut maybe with a little bit of, you know, one of those friends who's your super supporter, get gut affirmation from them, then just go do it. Even if it seems crazy and nobody's ever done it before and everybody else is telling you that's a really dumb idea, you, you just got to try it. And then pivot. Okay, maybe it didn't work. Okay, you just learned something from that. Now, what are you going to do with that learning and mm -hmm. go pivot again and again? Can you be in charge of our lives? Darcy, can you just do a, can you do a daily podcast for all of us to get our lives clear <laughs> and focused and we, oh, we God. Darcy in our lives every day? This has been oh, so my fun God. to listen to your experiences and your stories. And I can see how at your point in your career, you're still fired up every day to make change happen. You're still fired up to make sure that people are taken care of and accounted for, and you're fired up to help other people get involved and learn. And I love that advice. I want to go back to it for a second, which is when somebody asks you for coffee or lunch or to go grab a drink at the end of a conference, always say yes, if you possibly can, because that is your opportunity to get an insider look at somebody else's life experiences, but more importantly, to ask them about their career and for them to give you some of that advice that maybe you can't ask your supervisor or your team member for. And so I remember being in a big conference and a speaker said, tonight, the three biggest speakers are all going out to dinner and there's an open invitation to join us. And we've been doing this for years. And so few people actually come and meet up for dinner. And he said, it's a bummer because we've got some great wisdom for you. And this is an opportunity for you to ask us any kind of question on how we got to the place that we are at the top of our game. And I never forget that about that experience with him saying, show up, meet the people, use your network. You don't know when you will need us at some other point to so build a relationship now. And I thought that was brilliant. Uh, and don't sit at a table with people you know, forget the safety in numbers, go out and find new people. Like, why Use every minute of your time 
just productively. And it's so much more satisfying. You're right. You know, and where a lot of this came from, the wrap up on Kappa is, is Kappa. Kappa gave me early opportunities for leadership, for relationship building, for conflict resolution. <laughs> I'm sure there's some Kappas laughing on that one. Uh, and just the, the, the confidence of your view, someone's chosen you, you've been selected because they think that you've got something, like live up to that expectation in your life, not just in your chapter. I remember we were raising money. This woman has said yes to us for a, um, an, an investment in the Leadership Academy, a very early investment, our very first large uh, challenge investor in Leadership Academy. And the reason why she did it, when we gave her choices, you could do scholarships, you could do all these things. She said, you know what? There was a woman in my chapter who recognized my leadership potential before I recognized it in myself. And there was no leadership academy back then, but there was for her an opportunity to lead in her chapter. And now she is a woman who has a lot of responsibilities and she credits Kappa as a place that she really felt that confidence and the beginning of her spreading her wings on leadership. So I can't say enough good things about how, how what you see today, 45 years later, <laughs> I'm going to get kind of teary, <laughs> is, is a lot of kappa. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think it's our duty as women to turn on the lights, the spotlights for other women, to make sure that they've got the experiences that we've been given and to make sure there's a lot of competition among women, I would always uh, argue, but man, when we can turn the lights on for other women and help them see what they can't see, I think that's some of our best work as sorority women. Here, here. I don't know another way we could end this more beautifully. And so I just wanna say a huge thank you. I've learned so much today. You are an incredible woman and we are all better from your experience. So thank you so much. <laughs> what we're learning is you don't know how to take a compliment is that true uh, well, <laughs> anyway thank you and my mother would have said just say thank you <laughs> thank you thank you i appreciate it yeah. Well, I'm overwhelmed, to be honest. That was probably one of my favorite podcasts to record in my whole career. I learned a lot, but what I learned is that no matter what your role is, the networking opportunities are the most valuable components of how we grow. And over a 32-year career, what I loved is that idea of being adaptable and pivoting is not a one-time shot. It's not just when a relationship changes or a new city arrives or your kids or family start to grow, but it's the daily work that we have to do to be in a place to develop our skills on, a, on the continuum. And so seeing her career over 32 years made me realize this is a life skill that we all need and one that is certainly not going to go away. I hope that you learned as much as I did. Darcy, again, a huge thank you to you. Y'all, we've just finished two conversations about this topic on how to be adaptable and pivot no matter where you are in your career. I'm hoping the takeaways for you were just as plentiful as the big takeaways for me. I hope you all enjoy and we'll see you on the next podcast.
This Career Academy series is brought to you by Kappa Kappa Gamma, hosted by Aaron Murphy Fisher and produced by me, Ryan Gannon. Special thanks to today's guests, and a very special thank you to Kim Mirabelli, Villanova, whose generous support makes this programming possible. 